Hey, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 11 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for your life and mission. I am Aaron Santemeyer, and I will be your host. Each episode, I will be having a transparent conversation with people who care about you and desire for you to be healthy, resilient, and confident in your life and as you pursue your mission. I know that one of the biggest roadblocks to health, resilience, and confidence is lack of clarity. I believe that the transparent conversations we will be having and the life stories that we will be hearing will be invaluable for both you and I. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down and learn from Dr. Ann Deaton, and she was... Remember probably a few episodes back, we spent some time with Sam Farina, and I was talking to him about emotional intelligence, and he said, hey, you need to spend some time with Dr. Ann. And he said, she's going to be phenomenal, and she'll provide some great insight for you and for the listeners. What you'll hear, we'll go into a deep dive and focus on VUCA. And if you don't have much experience with VUCA, that's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And then she'll walk through that on the conditions that we're faced with, and then also a solution or how we can respond when we're put in those situations. She's very insightful. She has some amazing background and story when it comes to our brain and the science behind our brain and the possibilities that we go with with that. So I'm looking forward to our time with Dr. Ann. So no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Well, we're so excited to be here today and looking forward to another episode in the Clarity Podcast. We have the pleasure of being here with Ann Deaton, and she's going to share many insights with us. Many of you know we interviewed Sam Farina, Dr. Sam Farina, on the episode number two, and he recommended, he said, you have to interview Ann. She is phenomenal. She has insight on building teams, emotional intelligence, and he said she would be a great person to add value. And so she is graciously willing to spend some time with us today. So Anne, would you be willing to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your organization and your writings for the audience? Sure. Thanks, Aaron. And I love Sam. So I'm so glad you got to speak with Sam. I'm a leadership and team coach. I've been doing this work for about 16 years now. And before that was a clinical neuropsychologist. So as a clinical neuropsychologist, I was working with people often at the worst times in their lives. And when our hospital merged with another hospital, I became aware that there was this field called coaching and that it was a way to help people not necessarily at the worst times in their lives, but just when they're at a point where they see something more as possible, but they're not sure how to get to the more. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 16 years. So my company is called The Bounce Collective. It is a consortium of coaches and consultants that work with a variety of organizations. And we really are working with people to become more confident and competent and really to thrive, not just survive. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so has your background, and you said a background in neuroscience? Yeah, clinical neuropsychology. Yeah. yeah. And how that background, has that helped you into the coaching side? And then could you just play that out a little bit for us? Yeah. At first, Aaron, I have to be honest, like I put aside a little bit one identity and dove into the other, but you're exactly right. It's It's been really relevant because the way we react and what I knew about our brains from that 
study helps me to really understand when we show up at our best and when we don't, and to really understand that when we get triggered, which we often do with uncertainty or ambiguity or stress, when we get triggered, we're just trying to survive. And we do that in very primitive ways, and our brains are designed to help us with that fast track of reaction, but it's really not a recipe for thriving. So it has influenced my work quite a lot, as I'm sure you'll hear as we're talking today. That's great. As I searched your name on the internet, I saw that you've written a few books. Could you share about those? Yeah, I've written two books. The first was about six years ago now called Being Coached, and it's group and team coaching, but it's really from the insider's point of view. What is it like to experience that? Okay. So not so much a didactic book. It's not the book you'd read to find out how to do group coaching. It's what you'd read if you were trying to figure out, do I want to do groups or do I want to be in a group? Would that be a good thing for me? Okay. And then the more recent book is called VUCA Tools for a VUCA World. And it's really about this thing we call VUCA, which I suspect you're very familiar with since you're talking about ambiguity and uncertainty. But VUCA is a term that came from the Army War College in the 1990s. It's one of those odd terms that nobody takes credit for. It Uh showed up in somebody's writing and it took off. But it stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. So an acronym for those four words. And really for the Army War College, it was the terrain of how we fight wars is changing. And Uh we can't do it the same way anymore. And then the reason I think it's been adopted by so many others is really the terrain we're all in, that things are changing all the time. They are volatile. They are uncertain. The things we did that worked before don't always work anymore. Definitely complex, just massive volume of data and information and resources. And then the ambiguity of not always just being clear even about where we're headed. So the stress of VUCA was where that second book came from. And then because I'm so oriented to, well, what do we want instead, rather than what don't we want? I'm not a fear-based person. I started to think, what would the antidote be? If we don't want those things, what is it we do want? And what came up for me is it's the same four letters, but it's an antidote for VUCA, which is VUCA tools. And it stands for values, us, curiosity and aspirations. Wow. Very, very interesting. The second book, it's also a story about a team and how they use those tools together. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And we normally begin the podcast with, uh, we found that people learn more from people's challenges and the hurdles they've come over than if somebody sits and tells all their success stories. It's kind of hard to identify with success stories. We'll get to success stories at the end. But in the beginning, what have you learned in coaching and building teams. Was there maybe a challenge that you ran into maybe in the beginning or something that you ran into, maybe a mistake, and you really learned from that? And could you share that, maybe a story, something similar to that with our listeners that might help encourage them to let them know that we all are in the learning process? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're starting with humility, Aaron. (laughs) I can, of course, like all of us, think of lots of times I misstepped, but one that came up early on was one where I was given a task to create a team, actually, and lead the team. And it was something I didn't want to do, actually. 
Yeah. But I was made responsible and I could understand the value of doing this. I just didn't want to be the one. Yeah. So probably the first mistake, if you will, was saying yes. Mm-hmm. When I knew I didn't want to do it, it's hard to be a good leader when you don't want to be there. Hmm. That's good. And I would say the second mistake was then once I decided I was required to do it was in thinking too far ahead about where do we want to go ultimately, and then sharing that vision early on with the team, because not only was were they overwhelmed by it, but I was too, right? Okay. Remember, I didn't really want to lead this team. I didn't feel like I knew enough to lead this team. Yeah. And so it was not easy early on, because I think we felt like the blind leading the blind. And when it became better was when we made a shift and just, and humility is a good word for it. We all owned, you know, we don't really know where we're headed and we're sure we don't know how to get there. But what we do know is that if we stay with each other and keep moving and take one step at a time, we will get there or we'll get somewhere where it's more clear at the next step in the path. So I would say, even though we talk a lot about vision and knowing where we're headed in the future, sometimes that can be overwhelming when the distance seems so great. You shared that in the beginning, you really didn't want to be the leader and you didn't want to take the lead. Could you just share a little bit, was there ambiguity in the leadership role that you didn't want to walk into that? And if you had to do that all over again, would you have taken the leadership position and done it a little differently? Or would you have just said mm-hmm. no? Because a lot of times in our work and the audience would say we're asked to, into leadership roles. And sometimes we don't feel like we can say no and we say yes. And we're put in a similar situation to that you were yeah. in. What, what wisdom and counsel would you give for our yeah. listeners? Good question. I think actually I might have said yes more quickly, but from the standpoint of I don't know how to do this. And as I look around, I can see that none of us know how to do this. Hmm. And so it's okay that I don't know. I think I wouldn't have had that standard that I had to know because that was the biggest barrier. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thinking about what this podcast is about providing clarity in the midst of ambiguity. And so when you're working to motivate people on a team towards a common goal and you're working in team building, what are some things that you do or is there processes that you work through to help provide clarity for you and for the team in situations like that? Mm, lots of different things, Aaron. But one that comes to mind is I often will use visual tools. So literally, if we're together casting uh, pictures and I have a couple of decks of cards I use, like Visual Explorer from Center for Creative Leadership, but you can make your own, could be photos. But having each person choose a picture that captures where they feel like we as a team are now Hmm. and a second picture that captures where we want to be. That's good. It's a wonderful way to kind of get out of the conversations maybe we've been in and get in a new conversation. It's a place where my neuropsychology background comes in because I know that more than half the sensory neurons in our brain are visual. Good. So you would think they'd be divided among our five senses equally, but more than half are visual. So it's a really robust track in our brain, that visual. But Mm -hmm. I think... I think it just taps into something like someone might choose a picture of a market 
where there are vegetables and fruits everywhere and it's colorful and that's where they are now. And it's beautiful, but feel overwhelmed. They don't know what to pick. There's so many things, in fact, that they don't know. And then a second picture, which is like a dolphin and a dolphin leaping out of the water. And you're like, okay, I don't, I don't quite get that. That's right. You know, for them, it's very clear. I'm in a place of overwhelm right now, and I'm going to a place where I can see clearly and I feel free. And in fact, I'm leaping and frolicking. I'm joyful in my work, in my life. And just the exercise of each person doing that, that everyone takes a bit of a risk, right? Because there's not a clear connection between what the picture says and what you experience. So you're taking a risk, but in the process, you really make yourself known to the others. And and then sometimes have the team then choose a picture that captures where the team wants to be in the future as well. Yeah. And that type of uh, process, walking through the visual aspects of it, for our leaders that would want to engage in an activity like that, are there boundaries that you put in place for those participants? Is there limits on what the comments people can make and not make? There are lessons that you've learned that you think, you know, these are some boundaries I've put in place that I guess my concern is that could go many different ways. If you have a team that's maybe in dysfunction, it could maybe go dysfunctional pretty quick. Um, have, Could you give some wisdom on that? Well, one thing when they're talking about where they are currently, which is where more of that would come up, is I have them identify three things they love about the picture. Good. Right. So they might choose a picture and only talk about the bad things, but they also get to share three things they love about it. And it, you know, I think it probably does serve the function you're talking about, about not letting things get out of hand, but it also helps them reconnect with this is not all bad. There are actually some wonderful things about where we are now that we can build on. Yeah, that's good. That's good reframing it. I think a lot of the way we frame those type things add value and it, it helps frame the conversation as we move forward. We talked about that as using visual tools and and your neuroscience background. When you work with teams and team building, how do you help people develop self-awareness in situations like that? And are there tools, certain tools that you use from your neuroscience background to help people develop their self-awareness on the team? There are lots of tools I use. The one that probably comes up most for me is just helping people with their values, um, with identifying their values. And I think the reason that comes up is I think it's such a place where you and I might, if we were each choosing our top five values, we might not have any overlap at all, Aaron. You might say your values are clarity and community and things like that. And I might say mine are connection and health and family, but we also would hear each other's values and appreciate them, even if they weren't ours. So it tends to be a place where even if we differ, we really can appreciate one another's differing sets of values. You and your audience probably are more attentive to your values than most of the teams I work with. Mm -hmm. So I would say for a lot of people, reconnecting with their values as adults is a little bit of a wake-up call because then, of course, the next question is, if I say that my health is a value, then how am I living that? Um, Mm -hmm. What am I doing on a daily basis to honor that? And so sometimes people realize that disconnect. I do like many of the tools that you've used and heard about, Myers-Briggs and assessments like 
like that, but I think a conversation about values tends to be eye-opening for a lot of people and also tends to be something that gives them a really stable ground to stand on. Yeah. How do you help people in that situation you gave that maybe somebody says health is a value, but then there's some ambiguity there. There's not much correlation because they say they value health, but they're not really living that out. Do you then help team members try to walk through that? Or is that a personal journey that they need to, to walk on their own? How do you handle those type situations where there seems to be a disconnect? Yeah. I would say there, it probably depends a lot. What's our goal? Mm -hmm. Is it for each individual to bring more of who they are in a good way? Or is it for the teams? So if it's for each individual, yes, I definitely might walk them through. Okay, so what actually can the team do to help you with your health? How is that showing up here? If it's more of a team exercise, I might ask more questions about how is that preventing you from bringing all that you can to the team. So it might just be a more team-focused question, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One of the other things I learned about you was is your focus on team buildings. Team building. What do you think were one of the greatest overlooked opportunities today for leaders when it comes to team building and vision casting? Have you found some common themes that we overlook and opportunities we're missing when it comes to building teams? Yeah, what comes to mind, Erin, is I think that a lot of us have started to, for the last 10 years especially, started to recognize diversity is really critical on Mm -hmm. our teams. And maybe what we didn't expect was when we recruited for diversity that we would get more conflict. Wow, that's good. You know, it totally makes sense. You're trying to choose people unlike yourself. There's going to be more bridges to build. For sure. And I think a tool and approach I really like is something called polarities thinking that you might Mm -hmm. have heard of. But it's basically recognizing that any complex situation is there's probably not going to be a simple answer. So if you and I are talking and I say, hey, Aaron, we have this project, we really need to focus on the results here. What are we going to get out of it? What's the benefit? What are the outcomes? What are the tangible things? And you might look at me and say, you know, and all that's important, but relationships are really what's important. You know, that's what we need to focus on. Who are the people? How are they working together? You and I could butt heads about that, Aaron, and often I see that's what teams do. Mm. The challenge is each of us will leave that conversation feeling like, well, I know I'm right. And the truth is we are right. Each of us are right. Results are important and relationships are important. So I think when you ask about the overlooked opportunity, it's it's that opportunity to take both those things that are important and now really focus on relationships. What are all the benefits when you focus on relationships? And you'll be able to articulate that beautifully because that's your priority. And then to invite you over and say, well, Aaron, I think results are also really valuable. And then to talk about what are all the upsides when we focus on results? Wow, that's inspiring that we accomplish a lot. We all feel good. And then also to acknowledge if I win that argument and we only focus on results and we never focus on people, then what will we have? Well, Mm. we'll have stuff, but we'll not actually have engaged and motivated people. We'll have people that feel like cogs that are just churning out work. 
Yeah. And so we might react to that and say, okay, wrong answer. Don't focus on results, focus on people. But if we only focus on people and never results, then there'd also be a downside, which would be that people would be like, I love these people I'm working with, but what's really our mission? What's the value of what we're doing? And so I think the missed opportunity is staying in those conversations and not trying to come to a compromise, but actually keeping the whole breadth of the diversity and difference and really fully embracing one and then also fully embracing the other and realizing there's kind of a third way that's not a compromise. It's actually getting the best of both and maximizing both. For sure. So you're saying that when we compromise, that's we're taking a lower possibility. We're not taking the highest possibility in the process. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think we all often do that for the sake of certainty and clarity, thinking that if we just have one clear, consistent path, that will be all we need. But in the process, we get rid of the richness that we really were seeking. You shared also about when we have diversity and the need to have diversity on our teams and then the conflict arises there. I'll be honest with you, for me as a leader, sometimes I shy away or pull away from those rich conversations that you're talking about and engaging in that. Why do you think we do that? And do you have any advice for leaders and people that are on, maybe it's team members, um, when there's one of these rich conversations, opportunities to have it and people pull away from it. Do you have any advice or counsel on how we can engage that and grow from that? Mm. I think the advice is to realize that you can't have the conversation unless you can make it safe. Hmm. So really, first priority, once you realize people are feeling unsafe, feeling at risk, and this is probably another place that my neuroscience background comes up, that I know we go to that fast track in our brain. I know we go for survival as soon as we feel unsafe. And we know that we're not physically unsafe, but emotionally we feel unsafe. Maybe our status is threatened or whatever it might be, but those psychological needs are just uh, feel just as easily threatened. And then we go, as you probably remember from middle school, to fight, flight, freeze, Or a fourth one that we didn't really learn about in middle school, but appease or submit. So just stop fighting and just agree. But it's not a powerful agreement. It's just agreeing to kind of get out of the situation. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the challenge. And so making it safe, which, you know, you know, many tools for making it safe. One is just from the person, like even if it's, wow, I see how strongly you feel about this, and then really listening and asking questions and saying, you know, I'd love to hear more about that and how you came to that. Where people feel safe, they feel cared for, they feel Mm. like they're important. For you as a leader, if you're the one having that conversation with them, what you'll realize is you also feel safer because now you're learning. Yeah. You're learning what makes this person tick, what's important to them. And that actually makes you feel more grounded and possibly even excited about working with someone who's so passionate. So you're saying to lead them them with questions and engaging those conversations. It's if I heard you correctly, it's more to ask questions and listen rather than trying to fill in the gaps and trying to be the one talking. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And that was kind of how you started our conversation today is I'm going to ask questions and then I'll listen. Right. 
That's for sure. But it's important. I think sometimes as the leader, I feel, and maybe other people would feel the same way, is you feel that you have to fill in the blanks and you have to be the one that's doing all the talking. And sometimes silence can be awkward. And we ask a question and there's not a quick response. My natural response is to fill in that. Is that our neuroscience? Is that people trying to feel safe and they fill it, the leader trying to keep their safety filling in those blanks? Or does that go back to that too? I think you're right in some respects that as a leader, sometimes you believe you should fill in the gaps, have all the answers. I also think we're really socialized to keep talking instead of be comfortable with silence. Okay. So a way to deal with that is just acknowledge it verbally, just to say, you know, I'm going to give you some time to think about that because I know that's a tough question. So mm. just to normalize the silence instead of trying to fill it. That's good. That's good. That's good. Many of our listeners are working on teams, whether that's teams in a business, a business for mission or another type business or a missions team, maybe working in a Bible school or whatever context. One of the things that also learned about you is you focus on helping teams keep and have sustainable results and focuses. Could you just share a little bit of insight for our listeners on that area also, please? Mm. Well, we talked a a little bit about when we have diversity and difference. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing for teams is that some of those polarities that come up on every team results in relationships as one that comes up. But another that comes up is stability and change. What do we keep consistent and what do we change and innovate? And so one of the things I often do with teams is do the work we're talking about with values and clarity. So clarity about your values, that's a stable place. You're not going to let go of your values as you move along. You're just going to find new ways to live those values. The other thing that I think is a stable place is figuring out who's part of the team. So for me, I call that our us, Mm -hmm. the people that are raving fans and are champions, but also the people that challenge us, that teach us to grow. But that's the stable ground is who is my team? What are the roles they play? And what are my values and our values that really give us stable ground? Okay. But but that wouldn't make us sustainable, right? right. If we were static. So the other part is what's going to keep us moving forward? And curiosity is one of those things. So what do we not yet know? What should we be asking questions about? If there's uncertainty and ambiguity, what are the resources for me starting to fill those gaps? So just curiosity. And then aspirations, you know, where do we want to be? Like you have an aspiration of providing clarity. And so having an aspiration, then when you're in the ambiguity or you're off the path, you do have this kind of true north that you're headed towards that keeps you moving, even when you've taken a detour that keeps you moving forward. Yeah. So those clearly defined definitions then help you maintain focus and move towards sustainability. Do you see within different areas, is there multiple definitions of sustainable or do you think there's one or maybe two that people should focus on? I guess what I'm asking is, could sustainable look different for different people in different situations? Absolutely. I think sometimes sustainable does look like consistent and doing the same things that you know work repeatedly and well. And sometimes that's what's sustainable, at least for a period of time. Yeah. And sometimes sustainability looks more like being able to turn on a dime and agility. The way to be sustainable is to 
notice as soon as possible things have changed and to really pivot. And so it doesn't always look the same. In the long run, I would say you have to do both those things. You have to figure out when to be consistent and when to turn on a dime. But in the short term, sustainability looks really different. And sometimes sustainability looks like temporarily playing small Mm -hmm. so that we can renew and rest and then being ready for the next challenge. Yeah. And then would you encourage teams to have that discussion? I guess my concern would be if we say we want to be sustainable, but maybe there's 10 people on the team and there's 10 variations of what sustainable means to each person. Do you think it's a value for the team to agree on what sustainable looks like that season or in that time for them? It could be a great conversation. I think another great conversation is to, at the outset, set up some team agreements. And so ask each person on the team what's important to them and really literally list those agreements. And so sometimes when I've done that with the team, one person will say open, honest communication is important. And another person will say kindness is important. Well, as we know, open, honest communication, not always kind. True. And if the team says, you know, what does that look like? Open, honest communication, what does that look like? And what does kindness look like? Then they can start to define it. And then as the team moves on in its life, they can revisit that. So when somebody, for instance, does feel hurt, they can actually come back and say, you know, that didn't feel kind to me. And there was a way to say that that could have been kind, that didn't feel kind. So they can hold each other accountable. I think that's often a good tool for sustainability because it helps you get back on track. Yeah, for sure. Well, looking at collaboration on a team, and sometimes I think as leaders, it's easier for us just to do things ourselves rather than collaborate with others. And there are some benefits to collaboration, and there are also some challenges to collaboration. At this season in your life and your understanding of neuroscience and things, what advice or wisdom or counsel would you have in the area of collaboration for our listeners? I guess it's fascinating you say this season of life. I think two things that I would say I'm learning, continue to learn. One is actually ask for help. Okay. Which I think I grew up with a mantra of take care of yourself and be self-reliant. And, you know, as life goes on, you learn that asking for help also can be powerful. Yeah. That people actually want to help. Yeah. And the other thing, which might seem paradoxical since I've just said ask for help, is do more than half. Hmm. That we each sometimes know all the work and effort we're putting forth, but we don't actually know all the work and effort the other's putting forth. And so we tend to assess that we're doing a lot and maybe assess they're not doing their fair share. And so for me, that notion of do more than half is actually pretty helpful because then I don't feel tension at that point. If I assess way I'm doing a lot, I feel like, yep, I want to make sure I'm doing more, more than my fair share because I know there's things the other person's doing that I'm clueless about. Yeah. And if we're each doing more than half, then obviously we're much more likely to meet in the middle. That's good. That's very good. Just to turn just back, you said asking for help. Could you unpack that just a little bit? Why do you think at times we're hesitant to ask for help? You said you're raised to not, we were not raised to not ask for help. 
I would say that was a common theme also for me to be independent, to do things. And I find that it takes more courage for me to ask for help than it does for me to try to muscle down and muscle through it. But I'm still hesitant to do that. Is Do you have anything you could share on why you think we has, maybe it's from a neuroscience level or a different level on why we're hesitant or is that a cultural thing or? I think lots of reasons. One is is that sometimes we're just in the habit of doing it ourselves. You mentioned another one earlier that it, it's often more efficient to do it ourselves. You know, yeah. we know what we can count on. Sometimes I think it is does feel vulnerable, like a sign of weakness to ask for help. Mm-hmm. For me, one of the things that I realized was a barrier was that often I look around me and I see that everybody's got a lot on their plate. So it's feeling like asking for help is a burden to Hmm. others. Um, That's one I have for the most part found doesn't feel true when I ask for help. When I ask for help, it, it often feels that the other person feels valued and appreciated for what they offer and it doesn't add to their burden. That's good. That's good. That's good. And I think you are right. Sometimes we're, we have a hesitancy not to ask because we don't want to burden people. And I would fall into that category. Being a nurse, we're taught to care for others. And it's, I think when you're in the caring profession, then to ask someone to care for you, to help you can at times be cumbersome and sometimes be awkward because the roles are switched there. And I think it would correlate also with leaders. We're used to the one leading and helping, but at the same time to ask for that, as you said, can feel vulnerable. I don't, would you agree that when people, when we're vulnerable with others, I think it, we don't do it to gain clout or to gain um, favor with somebody, but when we show our vulnerability, I found that that draws us closer together on the team rather than separate. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that's an overgeneralization? I think it absolutely builds trust and pulls people together. Yeah. I think what most of us believe is that you have to have trust to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. And there's been lots of research, actually, that when somebody takes a risk and is vulnerable, that that can build trust, you know, so we're reluctant to take a risk when we don't think it's a safe or trustworthy situation. But when we do, and we share something or ask for help, then trust goes up. So yeah, that's very, very interesting. Well, we've covered a lot of different subjects and we began with, as you said, a humble beginning sharing our challenges and the areas. What is an area today that you see that encourages you, gives you hope as you work with teams, you work with individuals in this area of collaboration and team building? What's something that you're excited about and you would consider a win at the present time? There are a lot of things I'm excited about. I think one thing I'm excited about personally is the numbers of people and different groups of people that are starting to acknowledge that both and solutions are more likely to be sustainable and to be fulfilling to all of us. A a recent example for me was that a group of community corrections professionals, so the folks that are tasked with helping people leave incarceration and become functioning members of the community, invited me to talk about VUCA tools, Hmm. talk about the things we've been talking about with their annual conference. And 
again, I knew that I didn't know much about their world. Yeah. And so I just trusted that if they were inviting me, that it was because they were hungry for some other tools. And it was just an amazing experience of me seeing them more completely and them inviting me in and them being vulnerable. You know, they don't usually talk about values yeah, for sure. with one another. They talk about how do you enforce things? How do you set boundaries? How do you literally keep people safe? And so it was just a great conversation. So I think that's what makes me optimistic is the number of conversations and the conversations that are happening in very different communities. You mentioned business, but community corrections and yeah. faith-based work. I think there are some really powerful conversations happening and more and more people really seeing that it's going to take all of us to get to where we need to be. Yeah. And are you encouraged by the research and the developments that are coming out about the brain being it's neuroplasticity? You know, I went through nursing school and my anatomy classes. It was, we were taught that the brain was pretty much fixed. I mean, uh-huh. I'm dating myself, but that was the impression that was given. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, that kind of idea. Are you encouraged by what we're learning and learning about the brain and the future and our ability to learn and grow and develop? Yeah, I really am. I was trained the same way you were, Aaron, possibly at about the same time, but that adult brains don't change. And then now what we've learned is they're changing all the time. And I do think that's the job of a leader in some sense is to be helping the brain to make new connections. Not that we're going to get rid of the old tracks in the brain, but we can lay down new tracks throughout our lives. And that really is exciting to realize that. Yeah. It encourages me. And I'm not a specialist like you. So I would imagine for a specialist, it's really exciting just to see what's out there. And as a leader, as you said, it does give encouragement that we can grow and we can develop and that we're not static. And you know, the, uh, the possibility to grow is there. So, well, and it has been a pleasure and I've taken more of your time than I asked originally. And I just want to thank you for meeting with me today, having this transparent, unscripted conversation for our listeners to learn and grow in this area of building teams and growing in that. So thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. It was a joy. Well, our time with Dr. Ann, I knew you wouldn't be disappointed with that, with her time and spending time. And as you can hear, my cold that I had or whatever virus I had that I picked up and brought back was better, is better now than it was then. And she was phenomenal interview and you just had to ask a few questions and she has very intelligent and that's obviously can come through in the interview and her understanding of the brain. Some things that I just took out of was her antidote for the VUCA. You know, she talked about VUCA being volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, but the antidote to that is values us, curiosity, and aspirations. And the other thing that I really drew from our conversation with her was the idea about the polarity and embracing that in the sense that we want diverse teams as this podcast has tried to be a voice that's diverse and we hear different voices. But at the same time, when we do that, when we bring those different ideas together, there's going to be a little conflict. And as she talked about, it resonated with me how many times I've walked away from a meeting or a conversation and felt that there was compromise. But what she was saying is, is that we can actually embrace both. And 
I think that's the value of diversity. I think that's the value of having people on teams and in our lives. They do not necessarily see the world, do not have the same experiences we have had. Man, there's richness in that, in value and perspective and in life to have to engage both of those and to not compromise, but to accept both, engage both and walk forward. And so, Dr. M, we're thankful for your time with us. Thank you for investing in us as we listen and learn from you today. Next podcast will be episode number 12, and we'll sit down with Mike Messner. You're not going to want to miss the episode with him. I know that I say that every time, but this one is is super valuable to me as we'll talk about the difference between confidentiality and secrecy. We'll talk about how do we gain trust from trust. We gain trust because we have trustworthy behavior, and Mike has some great insights and valued sitting down with him. And so we're looking forward to our time. Um, Next episode will be episode number 12. Just want to take another minute just to thank our sponsors for allowing us to continue on with the podcast. And without them, it wouldn't be possible. And so we're now being listened to in over 55 countries around the world and fastly approaching our, by the time this launches, we'll be over our 3,000th download and just appreciative of them. So agwmafrica.org for an increasingly redeemed and transformed Africa, 50 countries, 257 training centers, 404 missionaries, 79,106 indigenous churches. Discover what you can do and how you can be engaged at agwmafrica.org and by Appalachian Spring Dermatology, bringing new life to your skin. Learn more about the medical, cosmetic, and skin cancer screenings and treatments Appalachian Spring Dermatology provides and sign up for Dr. Rosenberger's blog at wvderm.com and by Central Assembly of God and Pastor Doug Seaman in Cumberland, Maryland, caring for each person, connecting each story, and celebrating each miracle. And by Dr. Sean Ricker in Cumberland Optical Advanced Care and Friendly Service. And by Wes and Peggy Reed, co-laborers in life and mission. Once again, thank you again to our sponsors, providing clarity and life and mission, the Clarity Podcast. Until next time.